This is a Young Pharma Business Program podcast. So, yeah, we're, we're having a tremendous season in Geary. Uh, the oats and wheat are growing really well. We've got some seed canola here. I've got little baby Lucy with me today and four-year-old Lockie. And Brendan, the farmer, is away at the moment. I'm with Claire Booth and her two kids, Lucy and Lockie, on one of their farms near Geary. It's about 30 minutes from Dubbo. The four of us are farmers in the business called Booth Agriculture. We're based in the central west of New South Wales and we've got a couple of lovely employees, Rolf and Matthew. And um, together we grow, and Brendan, that's, and, and Lachlan, that's right. And we grow sweet corn, popcorn, um, protein, grains um, for the Australian consumer. And Rolf. And Rolf. And, um, and we're really proud to be Australian producers and this is our story. In the previous episode, Claire spoke all about being a lawyer in the succession planning space and her Nuffield research into what makes family business succeed. In this episode, we're going to hear how she's taken her learnings from her law days and her research to create a successful family agricultural business. I'm Sam Loy, and this is the final episode of Propagate Season 2, where we've dug into succession stories. We've heard from the experts, succession planners, facilitators, accountants and lawyers, and also from families who have been through it. Some people might think that succession planning is only for family farms when they're passing the business on from one generation to the next. But in Claire's case, she and her husband are first-generation farmers with a baby and a four-year-old, and they are already taking succession planning seriously. The thought of starting a family business without family land and assets behind you can seem completely inaccessible. The cost of land, along with managing debt and risk, is daunting. But Claire and Brendan had a plan, independent of the family farms they grew up on. I came from a family in the Hunter Valley. So for nearly 100 years, the Osborne family has been growing just some of the best fresh produce for the Newcastle and City markets. And so I grew up learning to pick potatoes. Uh, We were paid... $2 for every 50 kilogram hessian bag of spuds. I was just terrible at picking potatoes and I'd get this like envelope with $40 in it and I've worked my absolute bum off for six hours and I'm like, it got to be a better way to make money than this, you know, like this is a bloody joke. But I loved the fact that food production has just been something that's really special. So I look back now and think there's no accident that I'm sitting here in Geary. Claire wasn't in the line of succession for her family farm, but that option wasn't really on her radar either. At the time, it wasn't really... I was off to Geneva. I wanted to be a human rights lawyer. (laughs) I had no intention on meeting this fellow Brendan, who was a diesel mechanic in Dubbo. Um, Certainly wasn't going to be moving to some place I'd never heard of, like Geary. Claire's family had their own succession experience. We were really blessed to have Lynn Sykes, a succession planner, Uh, about five or six years ago, sit down with my mum and dad and the three brothers and have a really serious chit-chat about what mum and dad's expectations were, how they wanted to retire, what that looked like, how much money they had, um, what people wanted to do. And my little brother, Andrew, and I genuinely were able to say, Bram, if you want to be a family farmer on this family land, we wish you all the best, you know, like genuinely um, it's going to be a tough gig because it's high value land down there. Like it's 
dollars an acre. You know, they've got hand shift irrigation, 20 acre little squares of vegetables. It's incredibly intensive, very hard work. It takes a special type of person to do that, and that's certainly not going to be us. But Claire has really flipped on her enthusiasm for farming. Yeah, it's only been the last 10 years that I'm like, oh, this farming gig is incredibly rewarding and challenging. Like, it's intellectually stimulating. It's a really complex business. There's a lot going on, especially on the economics finance side of it. It's fascinating. We'll get more into that later. First, let's go back to the start. Claire met her husband, Brendan, just after her 21st birthday. And I was studying law at Newcastle and uh, we're really different people, Brendan and I. Uh, He's a diesel mechanic by trade. I just was like, wow, Uh, we're never going to stay together long term. But after a while, I realised that this guy had the same values as me and um, there was something really soft and gentle about this fellow. And after a period of time, I realised that the husband that I was meant to have as a law student, which should have been a doctor or someone professional or whatever, um, was probably not going to align with my deep values. At the time, Brendan's family farm was in need of assistance. I remember I was, I'd just turned 21 and I, he'd invited me out to help with the shearing. And you can imagine, I'd never grown up with livestock and here I am dating this fellow and we're doing shearing for the first time. And... It dawned on me that the bush and the central west have got this incredible beauty, you know, like these trees and um, rocks and pastures and the landscape. Um, There's just some majesty about it. It was just hypnotic. I just remember thinking how real it was. You know, I was in this world where I was studying law and it was all quite academic. And then on the weekend, we'd pop out to do shearing or we'd go around and do fencing or, or whatever it was. It was It was a really lovely time. Brendan's heart was set on getting a farm one day. Ultimately, he wanted to be a farmer by the time he was 30. I reviewed his um, uh, business structures and said, well, the way that you're approaching this is uh, naive. I need you to go and see some really good uh, advisors. They got some good advice. Claire applied her smarts and together they formed a plan and got cracking. So Brendan and I, at the age of 28 and 29, uh, saved up our own cash. We just got under a million dollars and went and borrowed money and bought a farm the old-fashioned way. And that was with no help from any family at all. It was sink or swim. It took years for me to realise that we were a first-generation farmer and, and no wonder it was bloody hard because there wasn't anyone else to help us. But getting the initial finance was pretty tough. So, you know, it took over 12 months to sit down with a bank and say, hey, please back us. This is the deposit we've got. This is what we want. This is my business plan. Um, I appreciate that you're going to have to lend outside of your normal parameters, but pop some covenants on me or do whatever you've got to do. We're going to work so hard and so smart that I promise you it's going to be worth it. And so we went and got our letter of offer because I knew when we were 28, 29, turning up with a $2,000 Hilux ute um, that the farmer or the real estate agent would be like, who are these bloody crackers, you know? Um, so I'd, I'd often email them and say, here's my letter of offer from NAB. They will lend me $2.5 million dollars. Um, Uh, we are young. I appreciate that it's unusual, but 
um, I'd like to come and have a look at this farm. So I'm not a tire kicker, you know, please, please, you know, because often you'd be written off as, you know, you guys are just going to waste my time. And then they found the perfect place owned by Bob, a retired QC and attorney general. And we finally found um, this one in Geary. It was way outside our price bracket. Bob knew that his farm was incredibly productive and was worth far more money than the registered valuation. So he stuck to his guns. And after a period of time, I think he he possibly came to realise that we were very serious, that we were a young couple that really wanted to have a go. And he reduced his expectations by $200,000 and we paid well and truly above the registered valuation. So we kind of met each other halfway. And it was no small sum. Oh, it was 2.2 and we had a plant and equipment facility of 297000 and then we had a small $75,000 overdraft. Um, now, compared to the debt that we run now, it's bloody cheese and crackers. Claire was not shy about debt. It was one of the learnings she got from her Nuffield research into family businesses who successfully scale. So one of the key takeaways that I learnt, which has had a dramatic impact for Brendan and I personally, but also for my clients, is that a lot of these family farms spend a lot of time understanding their balance sheet. So they'd understand land values, they'd understand debt. It just meant that people had the ability to understand their business and when they understand their business, then they can make decisions around whether they want to cash out and give kids money or whether they can, you know, go into a little bit of debt or maybe they want to do a lot of debt. So Claire and Brendan bought the property with a strong understanding of how they would run the business. They had a plan and stuck to their guns. To do what we needed to do, we needed to buy a turnkey property that worked. So it needed to have everything working so that because we didn't have two bites of the cherry, we had enough money to buy a farm that worked. So we knew that we needed to buy something that was a good quality property and it would start making money within 12 months. We didn't have the luxury of waiting because we just didn't have the money. Uh, So we started our booth agriculture business in May 2012 and in June 2018, six years later, we doubled the size of the business. So we started with a turnover of $600,000 and our business now has a turnover of just under $4 million. And um, I'm expecting over the coming five to 10 years that it will double again. Claire's attitude towards debt seems smart, grounded and bold. Debt is a good thing. You just need to understand how to manage it. You need to ask yourself, do you have debt or are you in debt? Because if you have debt, then you have a choice to have it or not have it. Whereas if you are in debt, then you kind of feel like you're stuck in the mud and you don't have a choice around it. And so that has been really transformative because what it's meant is that when we buy assets or buy a farm or um, buy water or whatever it is that we're buying, and often they're multi-million dollar assets and significant debt, you go, well, you know, if this doesn't work, then we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Um, Debt's really a dirty word. And it's quite common in Australian agriculture. Like ABARES says in their um, statistics that there's less than 6% of businesses in Australian agriculture that have um, debt of more than 40%. I just was, I actually called them and said, 
am I having a blonde moment? Uh, I think this data must be completely not right. And they were like, no, no, <laughs> that's right. They really don't like debt. And I was like, oh, okay. So, uh, and then that sort of made me feel normal because when we have chats with friends or neighbours or colleagues in agriculture and we talk about what we're doing and they go, wow, you guys are like, you're borrowing more money, Claire, are you? And I'm like, yep, but it's, but it's not for clothing or food or a new car or whatever. It's for an underlying asset which hopefully will appreciate in value. And if for some reason something goes wrong, then it's easily sellable and, you know, we'll be fine. And we've got some really serious finance policies and debt reduction policies in place. It sounds easy on the surface, but there is actually a lot of thought goes in behind the scenes. As a first-generation farmer, Claire has some clear ideas on their approach. So our business model is when you are young and able to have high levels of debt, you need to have diversity. So we, we grow lamb, beef, chickpeas, barley, wheat, popcorn, sweet corn. We're about to launch into some potatoes and we might have a bit of a tickle in some red kidney beans soon. So we often have 10 to 12 different enterprises going at any one time so that if something gets hail, frost, wind, drought, uh, whatever it is, germination fails, whatever, that um, you know you might have 20 or 30% in a year that doesn't go well, but then the balance goes well. So some years you'll break even, some years you'll do well, but you won't lose money because it's such a diversified enterprise. It means you work probably three or four times as hard as everyone else, but it's a safer way to run the business. And again, this was actually a really interesting learning I took from Brazil when I travelled through Brazil for my Nuffield was that one of the key successes that one family had was when they made a business work well, when it was uber profitable, they didn't expand the existing business. They would just duplicate the business elsewhere because the economies of scale would be diluted um, or the efficiencies rather would be diluted. It was a really interesting um, moment in time when I was like, oh, I don't actually need to buy the neighbour out to become a bigger or better farmer. I can just duplicate the farm. So we've got one farm here and then one farm 20 k's away and they're exactly the same farm. Claire and Brendan's business model is impressive, especially starting up on their own. They set up their own work styles and have developed clear roles as business partners. So I look after the spreadsheets and the strategical things and the banking and the finance and the law and, and, and all of those kind of businessy sorts of things. And Brendan is the farmer and we're a really good match because you need to have the production side of things and the business side of things. And we work really, really well together. And, um, and we've got, we call it our two separate sand pits. I don't venture into his sand pit and he leaves my little sand pit alone and we have a very happy marriage because of our two separate sand pits. And there are other advantages as first-generation farmers. One of the key learnings out of the Nuffield Research Project was that people wouldn't ask people's opinions or advice or permission. And I remember thinking, how weird. When you are in your first generation is that you can be quick you're nimble, flexible. You don't ask anyone for anything. You don't have to ask permission. Um, and those benefits are just extraordinary because when an opportunity comes up, 
literally I'll hear something on the radio or I'll have a conversation down the street with someone and I'll call Brendan within half an hour and I'll say, hey, such and such, what do you reckon, blah, blah, blah. I've just run the numbers. I've just emailed you the spreadsheet. What do you think? And he goes, uh, yeah. And then I call the bank and probably within like four or five hours, it's done. And then you email the accountant or the lawyer and say, can you just handle this for me going forward? Yep, no, done. Whereas if it was a second, third, fourth generation business, you actually need to have the courage to talk to someone about it. You need them to think about it. You need to, there's just all sorts of other things that they need to do. And, and sometimes that means that the opportunities just sail on by. So what advice would Claire have for other young farmers wanting to improve their business? So what we've realised is that if you measure twice, cut once, do your due diligence, run your numbers, have some policies in place, be incredibly strategic, and the decision is going to work based on whatever metrics it is that is important to you, then just do it. Don't ask permission. Get appropriate professional advice from people that you need to get advice from, but don't talk to your friends about it, especially don't talk to your neighbours. Try not to ask your mum and dad <laughs> because most of the time they'll either stop you doing it. Um, and, and this kind of noise is what gets in the way of really good thought processes. There's an exciting sense of independence for first-generation farmers like Claire and Brendan, but Claire does acknowledge that the risk, without generations of family equity, can be nerve-wracking. There's no fat in the system. It's incredibly lonely because if something goes wrong and you want to ask a question to someone, you're not going to call someone and say, hi, um, we've got sclerotinia in this particular crop. (laughs) Help! (laughs) You know, you'll speak to your agronomist and maybe a neighbour or two, but you don't have anyone to bounce ideas off. Um, And if you, you know, have a difficult pregnancy, like I was flown out with Lachlan to RPA in Sydney, I was in hospital for three months, Brendan would drive backwards and forwards, you know, like you don't have that extra family member to step in and help out. Um, So there's some massive negatives to being in first generation farming, but um, we don't have a choice. It's a really lonely game and you hope for the best and probably work far too hard, you know, like I think back now and I cringe at some of the mistakes we made and how easily they could have been overcome if we'd had um, a higher level of business literacy at that time or if we'd had more experience. But anyway, I can't wait to help um, the next generation of farmers coming through because the thing that I found the most stark and lonely back in 2010 through to 2011 was that we would call our friends who were working for their family farms and say, could we run our business plan or our cash flow budget by your parents just to check that the prices that we've put on this spreadsheet are right because we've never done it before? And they'd say, oh, no, we probably shouldn't or they'd never return your call or they'd find a way to say very gently no. But I now realise that the reason that they didn't want to help us, it was that they actually didn't have a cash flow budget. (laughs) They didn't have a business plan. Claire and Brendan's solution has been to build their own support team, including a business coach. When we brought Richard Groom on board, our business coach, and he's been with us for nearly five years now, Richard has been a balancing force in our business where you've got two very young, determined and driven 
people wanting to expand and borrow and banks are happy to support you and all that sort of stuff. And Richard's like, well, actually, what about this? And what about that? We are so blessed to have him as such an asset to our business. And if any young farmer um, decides that they want to have a go, make sure you get yourself a really great business coach because they make you do things every single month every single quarter, whatever you do and whatever you say you're going to do, they make you do it. You know, you are so disciplined, all the boring things that you don't want to do, you just do it. And as a result of it, over a five-year period, you realize that you've got policies and statements which describe how the business works. And um, we've got some incredible people that work with us. And together, there was probably like 15 or 20 of us in this great team. and, And we created something together and it's been great. Claire and Brendan have also started succession planning, which might seem early given their kids are so young. But after spending this time with Claire, it's no surprise that they're running a tight ship. The one piece of happiness that has come about over the last eight years has been at a young age when we've had all of this energy and and the ability to take on a lot of risk. We've done it at a time in our life when we can do it. And so... The key part of our succession plan for our children is that we are going to get out of their way. So by the time they are at least in their mid-20s, if not 30s, um, we will be handing over keys. You know, one of the things I've spoken to Brendan is like, mate, you've got a hard fixed retirement date when he turns 60. Our succession plan at this point will be if... Anything happens to Brendan or myself until the children are about 24, 25, that assets will be leased um, if, if that's possible. So debt will be repaid to a certain point and then core assets will be retained. Children will be given the option to make some decisions, um, not when they're 18 and not when they're 21, but when they're a bit older than that. And if they choose that they don't want to be in agriculture, Um, then the assets are likely to be sold and that money will be placed into a trust. And then if they decide to set up their own business or become a profession or or whatever they want to do, then they've got some resources there. We've got to review it every three or four years. Um, Who knows what will happen with our children? You know, like I think the thing with a succession planning and estate planning is that um, it's a live document it responds to your life and as your life changes, that document needs to change, you know. Um, And you need to have a really good will which has got a trust in it that can be flexible. Um, You need to make sure that it's up to date and hope for the best and make sure you've got lots of insurance around you to pay off any debt if you can afford that, you know. But in the event that both Brendan and I are still alive at the time that they're in their mid-20s, we will be doing our own thing. And the vision for retirement is crystal clear. We just did some initial conversations about our succession plan a couple of weeks ago and I was like, right, I need to have $80,000 a year off-farm income. I'd love to have an overseas trip like once every two years. Uh, I'd like to live in a nice house with a nice garden, blah, 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 all these materialistic things, right? And here's lovely Brendan that says, Claire, I just want a gator. I, I just want to be able to turn up drive around, check out what the kids are doing, if they're doing stuff, um, be around, help out. I'm thinking, oh, that's why I married you. You know, not too fussed about all the fancy stuff. He just wants a gator. (laughs) 
So I was like, well, I'll look after the self-managed super fund and you can have the gator. <laughs> That's probably why our marriage works so well. <laughs> I think it's just been the most challenging eight years. I've put on a fair bit of weight. Occasionally I have panic attacks, but we've also had the most incredibly rewarding years because we set ourselves some challenges and we go and get it and we achieve it. It seems all young farmers can learn a bit from Claire. She's applied her learning from the law and put in place a detailed succession plan, a will, an estate plan and clear retirement goals. She's learned that identifying as not just a farmer, but a business person can take you further than you expect. And building a good support team, be it a lawyer, accountant, business coach, a family member or mentor, or all of those, it can give you the extra boost to really succeed. Perhaps the clearest thing that has come through in all the stories we've heard in this season is the importance of good communication. If communicating about the business and succession planning with the family is hard, there are people out there who can help you by listening to all points of view and mapping out a shared vision and plan for the future. The healthy family relationships that you can develop through this process are what makes pushing through some of those tough conversations worth it. And ultimately, this is going to help the business prosper as well. Because, as Isabel Knight told us back in episode one, Balancing the relationships in the business is tricky. I think families do need to focus on the relationships as a priority because at the end of the day, on our deathbeds or in our beds at night, the things that worry us the most are our relationships. I know that droughts, hard times, financial pressures will also worry us. They're the things that come and go in business. I think the relationships actually are a major priority. Thanks for listening to this season of Propagate and special thanks to all the families and incredibly wise people who have shared their time and stories. Propagate is brought to you by the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Young Farmer Business Program. You can find all the episodes on the Young Farmer Business Program website and you can find us on your favourite podcast player. Don't forget to hit subscribe and cheers for listening.